0: So we are now in week 8 in our Scenes in Acts series, where we've been looking at some of the most dramatic moments in the book of Acts, the start of the early church, and we certainly have a dramatic moment to look at this morning. Uh, I've titled this scene Demons in Ephesus, uh, sounds like a, the title to a horror movie, right? And, and there, there is some stuff in it that seems like something out of a supernatural horror movie, Uh, If you were here last week, hopefully you remember that I talked a little bit about the subject of evil spirits. And one of the things I said is that I recognize that in the culture that we live in today, belief in the existence of evil spirits can be seen as superstitious or uh, primitive, maybe a little naive. It's the kind of subject where if it comes up, you're likely to have somebody say, "Well, you don't really believe that stuff, do you? Right? Um, but regardless of what our culture thinks, it's important for us to recognize that the Bible consistently presents us with the perspective that there is an unseen spiritual realm and that there are in that spiritual realm evil spirits who do seek to do us harm and do influence the physical realm, and that's not just the Bible's perspective. More specifically, it's also Jesus's perspective. Because throughout Jesus' ministry, he confronted evil spirits. He casted evil spirits out of people. That was part of what he did. So obviously, he assumed the existence of evil spirits. Now, for some of us, taking uh, the idea of evil spirits seriously is not hard at all. Uh, Maybe because of personal experiences that we've had. Maybe we think we've actually encountered some of that stuff, and so it's not hard for us to believe. Maybe some of us are just... Naturally, people of faith, and if the Bible says it, if Jesus says it, we <laughs> we uh, we accept it, you know. Uh, but for others of us, it's possible that we have a really hard time believing in anything that can't be proven uh, through science, through the scientific method. And if any of you happen to be in that boat. Uh, there's something I, I would like to say before we read the story that might, might help you out a little bit. So, as awesome as science is, and believe me, I think it is awesome, it is a great gift, it is a great tool, it's important for us to recognize that science is limited in what it can prove or deny. Okay, Because science, by nature, is a process that seeks to understand physical things to understand the physical realm. Uh, But spirits, by definition, are not physical, right? They are spiritual beings. And so you're never gonna be able to use science to actually determine that a spiritual thing exists. Now, what you might be able to do is use science to detect effects in the physical world from these spiritual beings, right? So that's a possibility. But the problem with that is that whenever you detect anything, You can always blame what you're detecting on something natural, right? So you could say, oh, well, whatever we're detecting here, it must be a hallucination, right? Or maybe it's mental illness, which in some cases it it may be, but in some cases there may be more going on than just that, you know? Or it was just the wind, right? (laughs) There's always, if your bias is to look for a natural explanation, you'll always find something to, uh, to put in the place of whatever you are detecting that might be Uh, supernatural. So that's one thing, that science is always going to be biased towards finding a naturalistic explanation and by nature it can only find naturalistic physical explanations for things. The other problem that science has with uh, detecting spirits is that spirits by nature are beings with a will, right? And that means that they have a choice whether or not to make themselves evident or not, right? So spirits are not like uh, electricity or magnetism, which you can study in a lab and, and recreate scenarios, right? And, 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 and those forces behave by uh, laws that are consistent, right? But spirits, if they exist, uh, and, and the Bible is clear that they do, uh, they are beings with a will, right? So... So one thing you cannot control in a lab is whether or not a being with a will is going to make its presence evident, right? You can't do that. If a person doesn't want to show up, the person can hide. And spirits can be especially good at hiding because they're not physical, right? They hide a lot better than any human being could. So all that to say, what I encourage us to do is to realize that science is limited and what it can detect, and to be open to the possibility that there's a lot more that that exists out there than what science can detect or prove, okay? As wonderful as science is. All right, so that said, let's, let's look at this story. If you want to follow along in your own Bible, turn to Acts 19, starting in verse 11. Acts 19, starting in verse 11. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating, they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. All right. So, first thing we're told here is that God is doing some extraordinary miracles uh, through Paul. Uh, Crazy stuff. God is making it so that even objects that have touched them, when those objects are are then brought to people who are sick or demon-possessed, those objects heal them. Now, I want us to notice, and keep in mind, okay, this is according to the Bible itself, these miracles were extraordinary. Okay, now, all miracles are unusual, Right? But these miracles were in a special class of unusual. These were very exceptional miracles. And, and the reason I point that out is because you have to be very careful. At some point you may turn on TV and you may uh, find a guy who looks like this trying to sell you a miracle handkerchief. <laughs> and I just want to encourage you guys, do not give those people a moment of your time uh, or certainly not your money. Okay? They always say the handkerchief is for free but they don't really mean that. Okay, It's part of a scam. Eventually, they're going to try and get money out of you. And just remember, okay, when this was happening with Paul, it was extraordinary. It was unusual. And none of this stuff was for sale. Miracles are not for sale. If, if, if there's ever a moment where it looks like a miracle is for sale, you know it's not a genuine miracle, and you know you need to stay away from it. Okay, So don't pay attention to any people who want to sell you miracle handkerchiefs. Uh, but in this case, handkerchiefs that have had touched Paul, did have this power to heal. And people who were noticing this were thinking, wow, Jesus is incredibly powerful. He's so powerful that people who serve him, you know, objects that touch them have this power to heal. That's amazing. And some of the people who were thinking this were the seven sons of Sceva. Seven sons of Sceva. And now, who were these people, this crazy name, seven sons of Sceva? Uh, This was a, a group of Jewish brothers who went around uh, trying to exorcise demons from people. So they were itinerant Jewish exorcists. It's quite an occupation. Um, And the sons of Sceva thought to themselves, well, if this Jesus is so powerful that uh, just his servants' handkerchiefs have the power to heal people, well, then we should be able to use his name and heal people with it, right? So uh, one day they're trying to exorcise a demon, and they say, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, we command you to come out. Now, if the story stopped there and we were asked to guess what's going to happen next, I think most of us would probably say, well, I think the demon's going to come out, right? They use the right name. Jesus has the power to heal. It's going to be a powerful witness to how powerful Jesus is. But that is not what happens, right, (laughs) at all. Uh, the demon responds, Jesus, I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? And <clears throat> then things get very horror movie-esque, right? Uh, the possessed man becomes violent. He jumps uh, on the, the seven sons of Sceva, and he drives them naked and bleeding out of the house. So, scary stuff. Now, why did that happen? The, the demon said, Jesus, I know. And Paul, I know, but who are you? Which is kind of like saying, Jesus and Paul have authority. They have authority over me. I recognize that. But who are you? You don't have authority over me. And because the demon doesn't recognize the seven sons of Sceva as having authority, they're completely defenseless against his attack. So, why don't the sons of Sceva have authority? That's the question. It's not because they're using the wrong name. It's not because Jesus doesn't have power. The problem is that they don't really know the Lord whose name they're using. Okay, Uh, They don't really know Jesus. They know the name Jesus. They know he's powerful, but they don't really know him. There's no relational connection. There's no submission to Jesus as Lord. There's no recognition of Jesus as their personal savior. Nothing like that. Now, there's two major lessons that I want us to take away from this story this morning. So if you're taking notes, this is number one. Jesus isn't meant to be used like a magic spell. Jesus isn't meant to be used like a magic spell. Now, the practice of magic was pretty common uh, in Ephesus at the time. And... You know, we hear magic and we think of illusionists and that sort of thing. But magic, at its heart, is based on a certain assumption. And that assumption is that there are supernatural powers that exist. And if you do the right thing, you can manipulate them and get them to do what you want them to do. So, for example, if you say the right words at the right time, then the supernatural powers are going to have to obey you or if you brew the right concoction and throw the right animal parts in at the right time, you know, then you're going to be able to get the supernatural powers to do uh, what you want. And what the sons of Sceva were doing here is they were assuming that they could manipulate Jesus in that kind of way. Right? If they just said the right words at the right time in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, then they're going to be able to manipulate things around them. Then they're going to have spiritual power. So they thought that Jesus could be used like a magic spell, but Jesus can't be used as a magic spell. He doesn't want us to think of him as a magic spell. Because when we're trying to get power from him by using him as a magic spell, we're not in real relationship with him. It's kind of like never speaking to your parents, but always expecting them to give you money, right? There's something about that that's that's disrespectful, that's rude, So Jesus wants to give us power and authority, but he wants that power and authority to flow out of a genuine relationship with him. In fact, the only real way that we can have that power and authority is through a genuine relationship with him. As I was reflecting on this idea of using Jesus like a magic spell, it occurred to me that one of the ways that people sometimes do this is with the sinner's prayer. Um, If you're not familiar with it, the, the sinner's prayer is a prayer that people are often encouraged to say in order to become Christians, in order to enter into a relationship with Christ. And it goes something like this, Lord, I acknowledge that I am a sinner. I acknowledge that I need forgiveness, and I recognize that Jesus Christ paid the price for my sins, and so I receive that forgiveness, and I welcome him, I welcome you into my life, Jesus. Um, Now, I don't think there's anything wrong with the sinner's prayer. I want to be very, very clear about this, okay? The sinner's prayer for many, many, many people marks their transition spiritually from death to life, okay? It is the start of their entrance into the life of faith, into a life of relationship with God. It is the moment that people represent Remember, as their moment of conversion. And nothing about what I'm saying right now is intended to invalidate that or to take away from the significance of that. I've had my own moment like that, okay? So I'm not, I'm not trying to be hard on the sinner's prayer. <clears throat> but some people will pray the sinner's prayer and they walk out of the room and they just go on living exactly like they did before. Nothing changes at all. Uh, They don't cultivate a relationship with God, they don't read scripture, they don't go to church, they don't pray, they don't serve, they don't try to help the less fortunate, um, and and they never ask themselves, how does God want me to live? How should I live in light of the grace that God has shown me? The only thing that changes, if anything changes at all, is maybe if they ever feel a pang of conscience about something they're doing, they think, well, I'm okay because I prayed a prayer once. So I'm forgiven. I'm all good. Now, if someone prays the sinner's prayer and sincerely means it, I believe that that person should be able to rest secure in the knowledge that they are forgiven. But if we pray that prayer and nothing about our life changes, nothing about our perspective shifts, then I don't think that prayer was really meaningful. It wasn't really sincere because if we've sincerely prayed that prayer we're going to care about what God thinks and of course that's not going to mean living a perfect life but it is going to change us but if we pray the sinner's prayer and the only thing it does the only thing it does is make us more comfortable about sinning then we haven't really prayed the sinner's prayer we haven't really encountered God and what we're doing is we're using the sinner's prayer like a magic spell. And I'm not here to judge who's saved and who's not, but that didn't go well for the sons of Sceva. Okay. And of course, we also treat Jesus like a magic spell when we only interact with him if we want something. Right? If that's the only time that we ever interact with him. If we, if we never try to know and live out God's will, but we only go to Jesus when we want him to do our will, well then we're probably treating Jesus like a magic spell. So that's the first lesson. Jesus is not meant to be used like a magic spell. The second lesson I want us to take us away from this is <clears throat> spiritual power comes through healthy relationship with Jesus. So The sons of Sceva did not have spiritual power, right? Or at least not enough power to overpower demons. But Paul did have spiritual power, uh, extraordinary spiritual power. And he and the rest of the apostles, they cast out many demons in Jesus' name, and there was nothing wrong with that. That wasn't a bad thing at all. That wasn't treating Jesus like a magic spell. That was advancing the kingdom of God. So what was the difference between Paul and the apostles and the sons of Sceva? Well, it was whether or not they were actually operating out of a real relationship with Jesus. So if we want to have spiritual power over the forces of evil, over demonic attacks, we have to be in real relationship with Jesus. Now, when I say demonic attacks, I don't just mean overt kind of demonic attacks like this. Most of us, hopefully, will not, encur- will not experience the kind of uh, overt demonic attack where someone is possessed in front of us and they lunge at us and they, they beat us up, okay? But all of us, if we take scripture seriously, are going to be targets of covert demonic attacks. It says in uh, 1 Peter 5, 8, Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, prowls around. What that suggests is that most of the time, the enemy's attacks are not something that we're aware of. They're under the surface. They're, they're, they're covert. Okay? So all of us are at least subject to covert attacks uh, from, from Satan and from, from demons. Um, and if we want protection from that, we need to be in healthy relationship with Jesus. And in addition to the unseen forces of evil that we have to contend with, obviously there's all the visible forces of evil that we're probably more familiar with. You know, uh, human beings who sin against us, the societal injustice that exists around us in institutionalized forms. And of course then there's our own sinful impulses that we have to contend with as well. And I would say that when it comes to those, those more visible uh, sources of evil, if, if we want protection from those things, the same principle applies. We need to be in, in healthy relationship with Jesus. And if we don't have relationship with Jesus, we are vulnerable to those attacks. As I was <clears throat> reflecting on this story, I was reminded of something Jesus said in the Gospels. And I think this story is a great illustration of this teaching that we see in uh, John 15. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me, and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. If a man remains in me, and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Now, whatever exactly Jesus means by remaining in him, the sons of Sceva were obviously not doing that, right? They were not remaining in Jesus. And because of that, they weren't able to produce good fruit. They weren't able to uh, cast out the demon. And in the face of that evil, they withered like a branch cut off from the vine. Now, I've been using these words repeatedly healthy relationship with Jesus, healthy relationship with Jesus. That makes all the difference. So we need to ask ourselves okay, well, what does that actually look like? A healthy relationship with Jesus. Well, to answer that, I think we need to look at this analogy that Jesus gives of the vine and the branches. And specifically, I think we should look at this word remains. If a man remains in me, now what does that that word mean? That word comes from a Greek word that is often translated as abide or dwell. So one way of thinking about that word is it's kind of like Jesus is saying, if you make your home with me, if you make your home with me, then you will bear good fruit. If you don't make your home with me, then you won't bear good fruit. So let's take that analogy a little further, this idea of, of making our homes with Jesus. Wherever your home is, that's where you go every day, right? Uh, That is ideally where you feel safest. That's what we expect from a home. When a home is not the place where we feel safest, we say, this is a house, but it's not a home, right? Home is the place where you're supposed to feel safe. It's your sanctuary, and it's supposed to be the place where you feel known and loved and secure. And it's where you spend a lot, if not most of your time right? And similarly, when we remain in Jesus, uh, Jesus, his teaching, and his presence is where we go every day. It's our foundation. uh, It's our security. And Jesus is the one who gives us a sense of identity and, and the knowledge that we are fully known and fully loved. He becomes our home. He is home for us. And if Jesus is, is our home, if he's the one that we continually go to for rest and identity and security, then we're going to share in his power and strength. We're going to have resistance against the forces of evil that try to attack, to attack us, whether it's demonic or human or personal. And we're going to have defense against the prowling lion. But if Jesus isn't our home, if he's not where we go to to find our rest and our identity and security, if we, if we go to other places to be our home like money, status, um, career, any other false god, then those homes are very easily broken into. And, And we have no defense against the forces of evil. Earlier this week, I was reading a sad article about a study that was done on male pastors who had fallen into the terrible sin of having an extramarital affair. And this study uh, interviewed 246 male pastors who were in this situation and had to leave their jobs because of it. And it found that each one of them, before committing the affair, had all but ceased having a daily time of personal prayer, Bible study, and or worship. Um, That was the exact words that I guess... When they were interviewed, they said, "Yeah, I, I wasn't doing that." And so, even though uh, these men were pastors, they weren't really making their home with Jesus. Uh, they weren't they weren't going to him regularly for rest and restoration. They weren't going to him to be reminded of their their identity and to experience the feeling of being known and loved. By Christ and so when temptation came they were weak and they fell and I don't want to suggest that all of these men cheated on their wives simply because they weren't reading their Bibles enough simply because they weren't praying enough but I do think the fact that they weren't doing those things was symptomatic of an even deeper problem which is that they were not making their homes with Jesus and that made them vulnerable And so the message this morning is a really simple one. But I think this story brings it home in a powerful way. And the message is this. Make your home with Jesus. If you don't want to get jumped on and attacked by the forces of evil, make your home with Jesus. Make time to talk to him. Make time to pray. Make time to worship. You know, I know for me... uh, Some of the best times that I feel like I have, the times when I'm happiest, are when I'm walking through the woods and I'm praying, or I'm listening to, you know, a podcast where somebody is giving a great sermon. Uh, Those are times where I'm making my home with Jesus, and those times are critical for me in order to to know who I am in Christ and to, to have strength against the attacks of evil that come in so many different forms. So make, make that time. Make that time to make your home with him. Don't just treat Jesus as a magic spell, uh, but honor him as Lord and as home for your soul. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we want to be strong uh, when the forces of evil uh, rise against us. But God, we know that we are weak, uh, that in our own strength, we don't have power. And Lord, we recognize that you are the one with the power, and we recognize that we need you. Lord, I pray that we would remain connected to you, that we would abide with you, that we would dwell with you um, like branches off a vine, Lord, that we would receive all our nourishment, our strength and sustenance from you. Father, I pray that we would go to you regularly to, to be reminded of the fact that we are fully known and fully loved, that we can rest secure in you. And I pray that as, as we do, Lord, you would give us strength and power. In Jesus' name, amen.